Hi, I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Today we're having Tony Badran on. He's a senior fellow from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the world's greatest expert on Lebanon-U.S. relations. And we're going to be talking about the way in which the Biden administration uses Lebanon in order to further its goal of reaching an accommodation with Iran in the Middle East. This is especially important in light of all of the reports that we've been seeing about backdoor deals between the administration and Iran. So let's jump right in. Tony Badran, you are a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and you are the leading expert on U.S.-Lebanese relations in Washington, D.C., and um, this is the fastest-growing podcast in America. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. So you recently wrote an article in Tablet Magazine um, arguing that the uh, Biden administration is carrying out a stealth policy in Lebanon, and it's using the United Nations to overturn the American recognition of uh, the the recognition of uh, the Golan Heights as Israeli by the Trump administration. You want to give us a little quick synopsis of that argument? Sure. So let me just adjust. Something about uh, what you said, it's uh, the stealth policy that I argue that the Biden administration is pursuing is not so much in its Lebanon policy. It's that it is using Lebanon uh, and the notion of a Lebanon policy to actually pursue a broader regional agenda in line with the article that you and I wrote also in Tablet a few years ago called The Realignment, where we argued that, you get bonus. You get bonus points for mentioning my articles. Yes, uh, that the uh, that the point uh, of that of the Obama foreign policy in the Middle East, which continues today with the with the Biden team, which basically is staffed by the same Obama team, that realigns American interests in the Middle East with Iran and pursues a new relationship and an alliance. Uh, or an alignment with with Iran, um, which then downgrades Israel and Saudi Arabia. Okay, so you've you have uh, you've already outed me as being highly sympathetic to this line of argument. <laughs> I can't I can't pretend to be a neutral observer here. No, uh, but I mean that's the framework in which I'm pursuing uh, this idea of a stealth policy. So, uh, in addition to to this Iran. Um, or as as a supplement to this Iran uh, policy, um, Barack Obama also in his final days in office deemed it extremely important to his quote-unquote legacy that he send a parting shot on the way out. This is UN Resolution 2334. Correct. Which uh, the United States orchestrated behind the scenes, twisted arms, basically, and got people in, in states in alignment, and then 
proceeded to abstain from voting, which allowed the passage. Pretended that they were not actually the ones running the show. Yes. Uh, that they, were, they, were, they were compelled by New Zealand. Correct. They, they had no choice. And this is important because I argue that this method is relevant to, to, to the issue of the Golan Heights today. You know, they orchestrated and then they step back and say, we are totally helpless to prevent this from, from passing. One second, before, uh, before we go any further, um, for the sake of people out there, um, our, our, our millions of listeners, <laughs> some of whom are fooled by this kind of behavior, explain to us why they bother with this. Why would Barack Obama claim that he didn't have the power to change the mind of New Zealand? Right. So before, before we do that, let's just explain to those who don't know what the resolution is. And the resolution, basically, um, with this resolution, uh, the United States adopted the so-called 1967 lines uh, pertaining to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Therefore, all the um, territories that were um, taken by Israel in the uh, 67 uh, war. So it turns the ceasefire line. I'm sorry. It, it turns the ceasefire lines of 1949. That is the lines before 5 June 1967 into a de facto border. Correct. Recognized by the United States as a, a de facto border when these were actually ceasefire lines. And so every Israeli settlement and including East Jerusalem. Correct. Becomes illegitimate. Correct. And and the Golan Heights, of course. Uh, and yeah. and so the idea that. This was very important for Barack Obama that in his last days in office, he had to make a major diplomatic effort with all kinds of countries to orchestrate the passage of this and to reorient the U.S. policy in that direction. This was never U.S. policy before. So you have now twin initiatives. One uh, is this thing where he... Uh, adopts sort of this radical uh, rejectionist uh, position of the radical regimes in the Middle East, like the Assad regime and so on and so forth, with regard and the Palestinians, and inserts the Palestinians kind of like at the heart of of everything in in in, the, in America's outlook in the region. So um, it's it's basically a big knife in Israel's back. And on the uh, uh, on the other hand, there's also the Iran deal, which he also because he could not pass it in Congress, of course. He could not get any support for it in Congress. In fact, it was rejected in Congress. He took his Iran deal and also put that in a UN Security Council resolution as well. So basically, the, the, Security, Council resolu the Security Council became for Barack Obama and his team a, a, a conduit or a venue through which they can lock in uh, their foreign policy preferences in quote unquote international consensus or legitimacy and bypass the American political system altogether. Uh, now, th these two things happened back to back. One happened in 2015, one happened in 2016. And they are twin initiatives, I think, because they, 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 uh, today, if we look at all of their behavior with regard to Israel and to Iran, uh, all of it can be explained if you understand these two things as their twin pillars of their regional policy, uh, how they approach Israel, how they approach the region, how they approach Iran, and, and so on. Uh, this happens, and um, Barack Obama exits, Donald Trump comes in, um, 
belatedly, uh, Donald Trump uh, recognizes Israeli sovereignty over the Golan in 2019. Um, and now, as far as the United States is concerned, um, the Golan and, and, and the six, you know, especially the Golan Heights, is now sovereign Israeli territory. It's no longer, uh, you know, simply Israeli controlled territory. But Team Biden wants to roll that policy back. Yes, and they have been doing so. First, on the uh, 67 lines, just more broadly, they've been doing so in the context of Jerusalem and and the uh, Palestinian territories. So Donald Trump also moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which was a, a big deal. That also kind of put a damper on this 1967 lines uh, Barack Obama legacy. So these guys have to reaffirm the Barack Obama legacy, and they have been doing so. And they've been doing so by talking about reopening the uh, U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. That would only kind of cater to, to that would cater to Palestinian affairs and, and so on. And uh, Jake Sullivan. So it would be a kind of shadow, a shadow embassy to Palestine. Correct. It would plant the American flag on basically what is Palestinian territory in Jerusalem in the 67 lines and so on and so forth. Now, the initial consulate in Jerusalem was actually in uh, in West Jerusalem. But interestingly, and just to, to highlight sort of the pathological granular obsessions of these of these guys, and by the way, it just didn't come through Rob Malley or Brett McGurk. This came through uh, the moderate, Jake Sullivan. You and I have never gone in for the idea that this was personality-based, that that Rob Malley is the architect of all of this. And if Rob Malley isn't in, then it, this doesn't happen. Right. Actually, our article very much went specifically against that idea. Yeah. Our article, The Realignment, Tablet Magazine argues that the the administration, the Obama administration, has a worldview. Right. And this is common to all of the members, all of the senior members of the Obama administration. Oh, no, Biden administration. Pardon so me. it was Jake Sullivan specifically who said that he that that their administration is looking to reopen a consulate in East Jerusalem. So he makes very specific that this is about 67 lines. It's not about just, you know, reopening a consulate within the existing parameters. So all of this is happening. And then in June, also, I think it was in June, they stop uh, all scientific and, and research cooperation with uh, with Israel in all of the territories of the... Of, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, so so you're basically putting in practice the, the reaffirmation of Barack Obama's uh, UN Secu United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334, uh, pertaining especially here to the Palestinians and Jerusalem and so on. But their position on the Golan, the, the government's, the administration's position on the Golan has never been uh, to actually accept Donald Trump. Everyone in this administration disagreed with the, Trump's uh, uh, decision. And when they came into office, they were asked about it, and they used very precise lawyerly language to indicate that they disagreed with it and that their intention is to reverse it. So, for instance, when they're asked about Israeli sovereignty, they say that they, as a practical matter, uh, 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 recognize Israeli control over the Golan Heights. 
The legality of it, however, is something else that they were still working on, that it was, it was unresolved. But it was not something that was politically, um, it was something maybe that was politically costly. So they laid all, especially since, you know, you have the IRGC in the Golan and it's the Assad regime and so on. So it wasn't something that they wanted to uh, come out strongly on, which is because it's it's much it's much more feasible through the Palestinians and the idea of a two state solution and so on. So they left it alone, but they made very clear that they disagreed with the recognition of the sovereignty. And of course, you know, like with all pathological um, uh, behavior, uh, you you don't just let it go. You obsess and you want to make sure that you implement what they what are. You of want. course, catechized on all of this, and the 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 issue. The issue is that the progressive wing of the party, for the the progressive wing of the party, uh, detests Israel. The uh, progressive wing of the party believes that the goal, that the key to uh, peace and security in the Middle East, is to roll Israeli power back, um, to roll Israel out of the territories occupied in '67, and this is the uh, probably their top, the top goal in the Middle East of the progressive party. Um, a, a, a rival, you know, the goal rivals the goal of of reaching a, an accommodation with Iran. And the the senior leadership in the Biden party and the, the Biden White House is well aware of this. Uh, they have but they have to straddle different constituencies among the Democrats. Um, and so they they engage in this kind of double speak where when they're talking to uh, um, Democrat mainstream Democrats who are supporters of Israel, APAC supporters, and that kind of thing, they have to have a language that allows them to uh, uh, to pretend to have the same values as an as a Zionist Democrat while pursuing policies that please the progressive base. That's that's how I see it. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah the politics of making sure that everyone's on board, but also you know you you try to there is there is something else I think that uh, this what I call stealth. I mean, there's a, there, you can describe it with using less euphemistic language. Seems to be kind of their their default modus operandi. Like they they the the, re, the, the reason I the reason I went into that long explanation is that when when you and I, I often find, I'm sure you do too, that if you say to people, okay, they're saying X, but they're actually doing Y, and then you and then you point out all of the things that they've done, you, I mean, you and I, we, we start to sound like we're, we, we, we think there's a conspiracy. I get that a lot. I'm sure you do too, that there's, uh, th there's no conspiracy here, Mike. What do you... And, and this is this isn't conspiracy. This is just normal politics. You just have to look and see what people are. You know what what uh, um, what Ocasio Cortez thinks, what what uh, Bernie Sanders thinks, and how powerful uh, that wing of the party is to realize that these guys have to. These guys, meaning Jake Sullivan and um, and, uh, and and Brett McGurk, they have to take into consideration those those feelings in their party. Well, I think it's less about Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders than it is about Barack Obama. The the key figure here is is yeah. Barack Obama, actually. Sure. So it's not like sort of ancillary uh, figures like 
The bottom line is this is about Barack Obama. Barack Obama put this stuff in action with the Iran deal. He put this stuff with uh, Golan and the 67 line. Again, very pathologically. This is not normal behavior that on your way out, you have to stick this thing in on your way out. This is not... No, yeah. New Zealand wouldn't let him. Right, yeah, I know. New, exactly. New Zealand tied his hands. Right. So, I mean, uh, I mean, we know, we know, and it's people who are, you know, actually very much who were associated with Joe Biden at the time, you know, people like Colin Call and so on and so forth. I mean, so there are people who worked very hard on this to make sure that, that, uh, that you, know, sev- you know, Egypt, Ukraine and so on, that they got in on, uh, on what the administration wanted. But anyway, the, the, the point is this, to me, this is about Barack Obama, very, very specifically. And Barack Obama remains today the most powerful man in the Democratic Party. He is the leader of the Democratic Party. And he is very much present in the day-to-day affairs. He opines on policy constantly as though he were uh, himself still in in office and so on. So this is very much a Barack Obama issue uh, and the continuation of Barack Obama uh, uh, um, preferences. Um, People like uh, Robert Malley, who shares the same pathology, uh, is you know was was put in place specifically as an implementer of Barack Obama's vision. People like Brett McGurk, who were lieutenants, uh, you know, for uh, on 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 sort of complementary uh, in complementary theaters to the realignment. So in Iraq, vis-a-vis ISIS, vis-a-vis the IRGC, vis-a-vis the pallets of cash to the IRGC, and so on and so forth. That guy now leads the Middle East uh, team today. Uh, including, you know, even when Rob Malley got sidelined, you know, th- th- it's Brett McGurk who is who is continuing it. So you have, I think it's, again, it's about Barack Obama's preferences uh, very specifically. And then you have to, um, to continue sort of the background of how we got to where we are. Um, because these guys have been doing this um, dance, uh, what I call using the back door in 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 my article, uh, you have multiple um, back doors that these guys uh, can use to push their uh, pro-Iran uh, agenda, and these are in pro-Iran in rather in Iranian theaters or what Barack Obama called Iranian equities, regional equities. Oh, hold on, we you we just moved from. Um... From uh, West Bank and Golan Heights to Iran, you 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 jumped one uh, logical plank there. You need to fill in. Uh, no, no, uh, this is coming back. So I'm saying the way we get to how they moved on this Golan thing now is through a back door. They didn't go out and say, "Oh, we're reaffirming Barack Obama's view on the Golan separately." There is no venue at the United Nations Security Council for them to do so, and they're not going to do so. For the reasons you explained domestically, they're not going to do so by making an announcement domestically that, hey, guy out of the blue, hey, we've decided that we are going to rescind uh, Donald Trump's recognition of Israeli sovereignty uh, on the Golan. That's not their, their uh, that's not how they're going to do this. That's not their modus operandi. So they need a back door, right? And just like we saw, for instance, now with the hostage, with the the prisoner swap, as they're calling it, right, with Iran, where they needed a way to give Iran money, right? 
So how do you give Iran money? You give it through the back door. You give it through by releasing, you know, money held in South Korea, by releasing money held, more money actually held in Iraq. Uh, so, you know, you hear about only 6 billion, there's another 10, you know, from Iraq and so on. So in this particular case, there is another back door that through which Team Obama dash Biden um, provides deposits to the Iranians. And that place is Lebanon, which is an Iranian province ruled by Iran, by the IRGC's local uh, unit, Hezbollah. So how do you now, uh, how do you get to using Lebanon to, um, to make a, a policy shift on the Golan? Well, there, since last year, there has been a dance between Hezbollah and uh, the Biden team to reach uh, or to achieve shared objectives. It started last year with the maritime border delineation deal that you and I had a podcast about as well and discussed at length at the time. And we warned at the time that this was a very bad idea and it was not a good, um, uh, it's, it's, they're actually um, sticking it to Israel. It's not good. They're, they're, they're positioning the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel in a very bad way positioning the United States as, a, as an intermediary, as a mediator between Israel on the one hand and Hezbollah on the other hand, and complementing Hezbollah. Actually, what they're doing is they're positioning the United States as an intermediary between Iran and Israel. Right. And Iran's proxy, Hezbollah, and they are, and this is a pattern this is a broad regional pattern that we first saw in the Gulf when they they position themselves as the interlocutor between between Iran and the uh, and the Saudis and the Emiratis, right. they forced the Saudis and the Emiratis basically to wind down their war in Yemen against Iran, um, and came, came in. They came into office, of course, and were immediately took the Houthis off of the terror list. The Houthis, that is the Iranian proxy in, in Yemen and then put uh, significant pressure on the Saudis and the Emiratis to wind down uh, the, the war there, all as part of a, an American reconciliation with Iran. So there's a, what, the, the vision that you and I have is that there is a broad attempt by the United States to reconcile, by, by the, the Biden administration, to reconcile with Iran, to align with Iran, and it is negotiating uh, through intermediaries like Hezbollah and others, or through the Le Lebanese uh, officials who are uh, cutouts for Hezbollah. It is arriving at deals with Iran through cutouts all across the region over the heads of America's allies. Right. And then forcing America's allies to make concessions effectively to, to Iran. But in every case, whenever it does this, it presents it as a policy based on some local, very parochial consideration other than Iran. But the, but the, big, the big picture here, the grand strategic picture is the reconciliation. And with Iran. actually the stealth, let's again, if, so as not to say uh, misdirection uh, is, is uh, 
actually they have a category for it. They have a, they have a policy uh, title for it, and it's called regional integration. That's that's the word that they use now to uh, describe exactly what you just and, said. But to, and they have a coordinator for regional integration, correct. and he is uh, the the former Obama ambassador to Israel, Daniel Shapiro, is now the special envoy for regional integration. Now, what is regional integration? They're saying the way they're presenting it is that regional integration is really just about integrating Israel with its Arab neighbors. But if you look at all the examples of regional integration that they give, right, I'm not sort of imposing that category on on these examples. They give these examples. They are all about Saudi and Gulf Arab accommodation of Iranian interests in Iraq and Yemen and about uh, Israeli accommodation of Iranian interests in Lebanon. Barack Obama famously said, 2013, 2014 maybe, that the, uh, maybe it was 2015 even, that the, the Saudis need to learn to share the region the with Iran. Share the neighborhood. Share the neighborhood with Iran. Right. And so, and so the, 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 the direction of policy here is to force American allies to make concessions to Iran and then the United States delivers those concessions to Tehran and smiles at Tehran and says, see, we're going to help you, Tehran, integrate into the region. And this way we will have greater stability and we won't be at war with each other. Our, 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 our conflicts will de-escalate, which is another one of their right. key, key terminologies. Sure. Yeah. So, so basically, to your point that they are strong arming allies into accommodations that are centered around Iranian interests, right? And that is regional integration. But again, to, to go back to, the, to, to this theme of misdirection and stealth and saying something, but actually doing something else and, and so on, that is, once you understand that as a prevailing um, uh, method and, and, and uh, modus operandi, it's not that difficult to see what they did then in Lebanon. So after they did the maritime deal in which they forced the sort of a hapless caretaker government in its literally in its final weeks in office to um, to uh, work to to concede everything that Hezbollah demanded, uh, they included in that agreement another of uh, uh, Hezbollah's demands, which is that the the corresponding border points on land are yet to be resolved and we need to move towards resolving those, right? So that what, what Hezbollah and the Lebanese contest as their uh, uh, belonging to them on land, those need to, uh, those yet need to be uh, addressed. Let me just point out that in, in the year 2000, the United Nations Security Council voted unanimously to recognize the Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon. There's a line that is recognized by the Security Council saying that Israel has withdrawn. So there's, it's perverse, you say pathological is your word, it's pathological for the United States to take a position that opens up the question of the land border in such a way that is going to be detrimental to America's ally, Israel. Correct. And there's an issue uh, uh, which in 2000, Hezbollah and the Assad regime made up, 
which is uh, uh, an area called the Sheba Farms, which is in the Golan Heights, uh, where the Golan meets sort of the triangle, where the Golan meets also Lebanon. And that, um, and, and uh, they claim that this is Lebanese territory, right? And nobody on earth uh, recognizes this. The United Nations doesn't recognize it as Lebanese. It, re- it, it says this is part of the Golan Heights. The United States doesn't recognize it as Lebanese. It recognizes it as part of the Golan Heights. And in as much as the United States in 2019 recognized the Golan Heights as sovereign Israeli territory, the issue of the Sheba Farms, as far as the United States is concerned, is finished. This is Israeli sovereign territory as part of the Golan Heights. Um, so the Lebanese want to use the reopening of the land border file precisely to reach uh, this point on the Shabbat farms, to reopen the Shabbat farms. It's, it's actually funny if you follow how all this works. In 1967, the Israelis take the Golan Heights from Syria. Syria and Lebanon, now the Golan Heights is a point at which Syrian territory, Lebanese territory, and Israeli territory all meet. Lebanon and Syria have never demarcated their border. So uh, exactly exactly where, pre-1967, where the, the Syrian border and the Lebanese border are on the Golan Heights is unclear. But the territory that Israel took was under the control of the Syrian uh, the, the, the Syrian government. In 2000, the UN Security Council uh, unanimously recognizes Israel as having withdrawn from all Lebanese territory. Hezbollah, out of nowhere, uh, says it's not true that Israel has withdrawn from Lebanese territory because they are occupying. Sheba Farms. Sheba Farms is Lebanese. It's Lebanese. So, so this this little tiny sliver of uh, of territory that is it that that was part of the Golan Heights that Israel took from Syria in uh, in 1967. The Lebanese Hezbollah is now claiming as Lebanese territory, and therefore saying that that Hezbollah's opposition, armed opposition to Israel and to the occupation of Lebanon, must continue because of this Sheba Farms fiction, which they pulled out of, just out uh, uh, just just out of thin air. Nobody had ever heard of this uh, 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 of this before, and remarkably, this is where it gets absurd. Is is that is that the international community, meaning European states, the United States, even the even Israeli governments themselves, start negotiating about this claim seriously when everyone should just say, uh, Hezbollah, sit down, shut up. Israel has withdrawn from from Lebanon, and we're not even going to talk to you about right. this. So, I mean, just by the way, just to be clear, it's not, I know this is a, a you know, this is very fashionable in Washington, both among Lebanese lobbyists and operatives, as well as U.S. government officials on the Hill and in, in the bureaucracy and so on, that somehow that this is a matter of, quote unquote, narrative. So if you take away the the narrative from Hezbollah, then somehow you leave them, you know, completely uh, helpless and without any option but to give up their arms and undermine their narrative, <laughs> right? You're going to win the narrative. The, yeah, the narrative yes, war. Yes, the narrative war. Now, of course, 
Hezbollah is not relying on the idea of Israeli occupation of the Shaba farms in order to maintain its weapons. Its weapons. So the logic somehow that, you know, if you reopen it and solve it, you you deal a blow to Hezbollah is just gibberish. It that's <laughs> Hezbollah has already, uh, you know, the. We, we, everyone should have learned this in two thousand because the argument back then. Uh, was that if Israel, because Israel was occupying Lebanese territory, and the claim was that uh, the, the claim was that um, if Israel, if Israel withdrew, then all of then 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 it would win the narrative. Hezbollah would no longer have any legitimacy for its arms, uh, and they would just kind of all of its arms would just kind of melt they away. They would feel because compelled to give them up. They would feel compelled by what? Who knows? No, because this is a uh, yeah. debate, and they lost the debate, and, and therefore and they and have we were, to give we up their also, weapons. We were also told, of course, that that the whole rationale for for Lebanon for Hezbollah to have the arms was the Israeli occupation, right. and that the uh, and and that Hezbollah would never ever right. ever right. contemplate turning its arms on fellow Muslims. Which, of course, during the Syrian, you know, civil war, it has slaughtered its fellow Muslims next door, and we we re we realize, lo and behold, Hezbollah is an Iranian light infantry division on uh, uh, on Israel's border, and it is there to protect Iranian interests across the board, whether it's uh, whether it's against Israel or whether it's against fellow Muslims that that Hezbollah would never contemplate right. killing, and and they have no actual. Uh opposition in Lebanon there is they are in total control there is just there you know not the Lebanese army not the Lebanese other sectarian parties it's it's all fiction right none of this stuff is real there is only Hezbollah and Hezbollah can do whatever it wants but the American government our government pretends that there's this this Lebanese government that's independent and it negotiates with it all the time and it's it's the US government is actually negotiating with with Hezbollah through the intermediaries of the Lebanese government, it knows it's doing that. It has no doubt whatsoever that the real power is Le is is Hezbollah, and behind that is Iran. They're not naive; uh, they're just cynical in terms of their presentation of what they're actually. And doing. again, back to our theme: you say one thing and you actually do another. You present something to the public in one way, and you're actually doing something else, right? So, with that, in spring of this year, Hezbollah crossed the border into the Sheba farms, into Israeli territory, and set up a military outpost with a couple of tents and, and, and put personnel in them. And uh, this kind of was kept quiet until a few weeks later where it was outed in the Israeli press. And it, was, it became a big deal that somehow Hezbollah now was inside Israel and nobody had taken action against it. And again, as with the maritime deal, you had a, a, a repeat of the role of the United States. Uh, Hezbollah wanted, the Hezbollah uh, Secretary General was very explicit and clear about what the point of this was. He said, you know, we did this in the same way like we did with the maritime deal. And now that we've done this, we've shed light on the situation. And here come the Americans with their mediation. Right. So the Americans came exactly the way Hezbollah. It's a dance with Hezbollah again on land this time. 
Amos Hochstein, the guy who brokered the deal uh, for the maritime. Uh, the Amos Hochstein, Israeli-born, Israeli-born American official, born to Israeli parents in in Israel, served in the Israeli army, is now President Biden's. I think senior advisor for global energy infrastructure or something like that. Global infrastructure, you know, in charge of many, many billions of dollars of investment on global infrastructure and energy. At this moment, when there's a Ukraine war, when there's all these concerns about energy in Europe, where is Amos Hochstein? Right. So Amos Hochstein just recently was in Lebanon to make sure... In Lebanon? Yes. In, in important, strategically important Lebanon. To make sure that Lebanon gets investments so that it can extract gas for itself and that there's stability in Lebanon and so on and so forth. So he can't... Because there's nothing else for a guy that's in, tr- in charge of global infrastructure to be doing but to be in Lebanon. Right. So again, this is to understand the role of Lebanon. It's not Lebanon. It's a backdoor to something else. It's to Iran and to role and 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 to affirming the Obama conception of Israel as really only legitimate behind the 5 June 67 right. board. And basically it's just a pressure tool, right? So now, you know, you're doing it, you're applying pressure on the Palestinian side. And there was always this thing with the Golan that was left, and they couldn't really address it. You, it's just politically weak to, to, to open the Golan head on. So you go through the Lebanese back door, and they uh, used this opportunity to now reopen an initiative to re-litigate um, and see if they can solve the points of contention on land with the border so that they can delineate the border so that Lebanon can have stability and investment per Amos Hochstein. Let's just point out here that that how clever to have Dan Shapiro, who, who uh, lived in Israel, speaks Hebrews, children went to school in Israel, maybe went to military service in Israel. Amos Hochstein grew up in Israel, did military service in Israel. Um, I had to have them in charge of the regional integration files, or at least to play major roles in it. So we're they 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 were were putting a stamp of kashrut on the uh, on this Iran in Iran engagement. And it was, by the way, Shapiro who at the time in 2019 was the most vocal in opposition to the Golan Heights recognition uh, decision, uh, writing that. Hey, it, and, and this gives us a preview of another initiative that they're using, a misdirection, again, that they're using today with the Saudis and uh, the Saudi-Israeli uh, talks. And Shapiro at the time writes that, hey, would, 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 how would this impact a potential Saudi-Israeli agreement if we recognize uh, Israeli sovereignty over the Golan? And it's, it's just not necessary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anyway, but uh, so they... They came in and they used Hezbollah's provocation on land, just like they had done on on the maritime. And now they had an opportunity uh, to, again, use the same route as they did with uh, Resolution 2334, which is the Security Council. How? Because at the end of August, the term, the mandate of the UN interim force in Lebanon, the force that 
supposedly is, is supposed to keep southern Lebanon free of arms and act, uh, you know, to maintain. This, this is Unifil. That's Unifil. called Unifil uh, for short. Uh, and uh, every year its mandate it's renewed, is, is renewed. So August 31st was when, when it was up. So they had an opportunity at the Security Council. And I wrote prior to the article about what they did at the Security Council, I wrote an article about a month before explaining everything I just did about what Hezbollah did and what, they're, what they were hoping to achieve. And I noted in it that, said, look, these guys are gunning in for a lot of things on the border, but one of the things they're gunning for is a change in, an Amer- in the American position on the Shabbat farm, however minute, however small. That would be a big, big deal. Um, and so I sat and waited for the UNIFIL resolution to come out. And two days before it came out, there was a, a leaked uh, draft that came out. And I went through it, and lo and behold, there's occupied Shabbat farms in there. There's language in there that the Shabbat farms was occupied. Now, this is a precedent in two ways. Uh, number one, never, ever, ever, ever in any... Uh, resolution on UNIFIL was the term, uh, with the exception of 1701, where the term Shaba Farms, without the qualifier of occupied, was introduced and not as part of a, you know, just as a reference to something that the Secretary General has done. Since 1701, which is the resolution that started the new mandate of UNIFIL after the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, since that, all of the resolutions on uh, uh, pertaining to UNIFIL, never once mentioned the Shabbat farm, and no one ever mentions the Shabbat farm as occupied, ever. So this was brand new language that the United States was endorsing in a Security Council resolution that had never, ever been introduced before. So you cannot chalk this up as some sort of, well, it was a necessary compromise, it was stock language. Nope. This was never used before. So America worked with the uh, penholder. And where were the where were the Israelis? Why weren't they uh, Why weren't they guarding? They, they, shouldn't they be the guardians of the language on these resolutions and raise the alarm and say, uh, "Hey, uh, Washington, this is unacceptable to us because uh, actually we're not occupying Sheba Farms." Right. A hard dobe, by the way is the, what the Israelis call Shabbat Right. So the Israelis, uh, it wouldn't surprise you, are more interested and focused on tactical matters, usually. So their interest was to make sure that the uh, language in the resolution um, that provided for... Uh, what's called independence of movement for UNIFIL, that they can do patrols independently in, uh, without having to coordinate with the Lebanese armed forces or the Lebanese authorities, was something really important to, <laughs> to maintain because this new language was introduced last year that some, and, and, and it was hailed as a victory. Meanwhile, UNIFIL's behavior on the ground didn't change one bit. You know, so it's like, it's it's just, it's fantasy land, right? It's just language games, narrative wars. It doesn't mean anything. Um, in fact, Hezbollah, right after that 
language was introduced last year, went ahead and sh and murdered point blank a unif an Irish Unifil soldier, and nobody gave a damn, right? I mean, it's just it's 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 all make believe. But the Israelis believed it to be something meaningful somehow, and it's really important to maintain that language. The, the Israeli the Israeli dream is that Unifil will have. Uh, the power to the power to actually stop Hezbollah or or occupy areas and keep Hezbollah from occupying them, weakening, diluting Hezbollah's influence in southern. It's Lebanon. just so that the Israelis don't have to do it themselves. They're hoping someone can somehow, you know, do the job for them in keeping, not in disarming Hezbollah, they're not that naive, but at least, you know, keep them away from the border, keep keep away anything that could trigger a conflict that we really don't want to fight. So let's just put anything in there. To which, is why, which is why they didn't just roll, the, they didn't just uh, use machine guns to get rid of the tents in, in Shevlin. Exactly as Nasrallah pointed out, the Hezbollah secretary general, he said, well, they could have bombed it to smithereens, but they didn't. Why is that? Well, because there's a new reality now and, you know, we deter them and so on and so forth. So instead of, so the United States, instead of sort of standing behind Israel, actually amplifies this deterrence by saying to the Israelis, do not touch it. We will come in and we will negotiate something for you. Which is, of course, the the bigger issue. I mean, the whatever, whatever, however many square meters, um, Sheba Farms is, is isn't the issue. The issue is that the line that was that was recognized by the UN is being unrecognized. The sovereignty that the United States recognized Correct. is being unrecognized. And the role of the United States as the intermediary between Iran and Israel is being recognized. And the uh, pressure from the Americans on the Israelis not to take any kind of precipitous action uh, against Iran's process. Right. That's that what... latter point is a key point, right? So the maritime deal that they did last year explicitly was framed as a guarantor of Lebanon's security. Not just its economic prosperity, but also its security, which is important and necessary for external investments to come into Lebanon and so on. So basically, the United States is saying, we are invested in the security of Hezbollah's base of operation. And this is why Amos Hochstein, who should be, who's the, who has... Uh, was a former Biden staffer, has the president on speed dial. He can get him anytime he wants. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that he's quite a uh, uh, he's quite an empowered State Department envoy. Uh, he, you know, he's a presidential envoy, and he should be in charge of the whole globe. And he's there in Lebanon because Lebanon is a priority for the administration because Iran is a That's priority right. for the administration. That's right. And so they did end up passing this language, and the Israelis, uh, you know, there are different interpretations. One is that they simply missed it. Uh, another possibility is that they were told by the Americans, don't worry about it, this doesn't constitute a change, and and they bought it. And in either, uh, either option, and I mean, these are all speculative, of course, either option would be, uh, would actually be, I mean, would betray tremendous uh, negligence and and uh, strategic misunderstanding of what just happened. The United States introduced a precedent language that never ever was used, let alone endorsed, 
by the United States. And they did it in the same manner that they did uh, uh, 2334 through a United Nations Security Council resolution. This this came up when I was in the White House in 2006, working for the Bush administration. Hezbollah was making a stink about Sheba Farms, and um, and unfortunately, we, the Bush administration, started to take it seriously, uh, you know, to win the narrative war. Uh, I was very much against, and what I argued at the time, totally unsuccessfully, was that we have a UN resolution calling for Syria and Lebanon to demarcate their border. And so the American policy, the brunt of American policy, shouldn't be on Israel and Lebanon and putting any demands on Israel whatsoever. It should be on Syria and Lebanon to demarcate their border. And incidentally, that resolution still does not mention the Shabbat farms by name. Just to show you how much of a precedent it is to introduce the language, let alone to qualify it as occupied. It was a very big deal, and the administration's attempt, since my article came out and sort of brought attention to this, because they wanted to keep it totally secret. They didn't open, nobody mentioned it. This was a major development in the language, and nobody uttered a peep about it. And the reason why is because they didn't want to, you know, draw attention to what they had done, uh, especially if they managed to slip it by the Israelis, if that theory holds. The Israelis are asleep at the yeah, wheel totally, there. Totally. Um, I don't believe that that the U.S. twisted the arm of the of of, of Netanyahu and told him to to ignore this. I think they were asleep at the wheel. Right. And even if even if even if I'm wrong, the fact that there aren't other observers in in in, in academia, in think tanks, in the press who who are watching this is really surprising to me. So there was only a couple of press inquiries that elicited the usual type of non-denial, denial, the kind of language that we're accustomed to. By, by the, there's no change in policy. There's no change in policy. Uh, uh, now, they don't actually actively say we, and as a matter of fact, recognize Israeli sovereignty over the country. They never say it in the in the affirmative, in, in the active voice, right? It's, there's no change in policy. But, but your policy isn't, you know, is still ambiguous. And now you did introduce a change, a major change, an unprecedented change, something that never, ever existed in terms of language in a, in a Security Council resolution on this very specific issue, which the U.S. position is the diametric opposite of. <laughs> so, like, the idea that there is no change, is, uh, I mean, is just not credible. Um, it's, again, part of the stealth and, and misdirection. So they were able to use... Uh, sort of they're able basically to backdoor it through Lebanon uh, again, which is what Lebanon, that's the function of Lebanon for this administration. It's to be able to force Iranian preferences on Israel, just like they had forced Iranian preferences on the Saudis and on the Gulf Arabs. And sort of everything becomes centered around Iranian preferences and you're tying the, in the old American alliance system. Now it, it has a new center of gravity. Iran is at, at its center. And you're using all these different tools to amplify it, you know, from the Palestinians to the Lebanese to the Iraqis. It doesn't matter, right? You're, 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 you're shaping a new order in the region. And that's, we're, we're, I think we're, we're running out of time here. But why don't you wrap it all up for us and explain to us um, in three sentences with a few long semicolons in there, uh, how the Saudi-Israeli normalization push 
Because you're saying that the central initiative of the administration is the accommodation of Iran. That's the that is the, that remains the the strategic goal of the administration, although it doesn't admit that. So, seventy two percent of our listeners, by my account, are are saying, "Wait, that can't be right," because there's a Saudi. The administration is now pushing Saudi-Israeli normalization. That can't be part of a, a strategy designed to accommodate Iran. And to that, Tony Badran, you say? Yeah, I say that uh, just like I explained the, how regional integration takes a, a, a shell, right, a form, and then hollows it out, right? So it takes the Abraham Accords uh, form framework, completely hollows it out of its actual original meaning and fills it with new meaning while sort of maintaining the shell uh, on the outside. So they uh, give the impression that they're doing something that continues the legacy of the Abraham Accords of bringing together allies. But the, the difference is the Abraham Accords was very specific about bringing together on two points, which again takes us back to the Obama legacy of Iran and the Palestinians. It the Abraham Accords did two things. One, it put pulled together U.S. allies with a clear separating line, like, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, right? We're bringing U.S. allies together opposite Iran on the one hand. And number We're the leaders of a coalition designed to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and containing its power on the ground. Right, or, or just sort of to, to, to delineate camps, right? Here's the U.S.-led camp. The U.S. is leading the quarterbacking this thing and here are its allies and its allies are all under one roof and then opposite that you have a different camp and you have the iranian camp and then the second thing that the abraham accords did is that it eliminated the centrality of the palestinians from the arab israeli relationship you don't have to go through the palestinians or the 67 lines or any of that nonsense in order to have the israelis and the arabs under the one roof of the american uh, uh, house, right? So in this case, you have the exact inversion of this. On the one hand, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. well stated. You bring in the uh, Palestinians back to the center of everything. They created new venues like the Negev Forum, for instance. And they, and they claim that this is a continuation of the Abraham Accords, right? It's not. <laughs> it brings in the Palestinians. It's a negation. It's an inversion of the Abraham Accords. And then on the other hand, uh, they just concluded a secret deal with the Iranians. So you have a secret deal with the Iranians. You have the reinstating uh, of the Palestinians in the center. And then you have uh, a reconciliation between Saudi and Iran, however however you want to describe it or qualify it, right? After all of these things were done, now they're saying we want to bring in Israel and Saudi via the Palestinians and via other stuff, of course. So if it works, it's still within that pro-Iran regional integration framework. It's just rearranging the furniture on a structure that is that is basically pro-Iran. It is, yeah, the framework is a pro-Iran, instead of being, you know, one opposite the other, it's actually everyone is being integrated. Israel has been you know, with the, Hezbollah, the Saudis. The number, the, number of, the number of people in Washington to see this 
is very small, unfortunately. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't matter. Then you just blame them. Why, why haven't you succeeded in convincing everyone of this? I, I don't know. <laughs> you seem like a smart guy. Can't you do better? I will do better. I will thrive to do better. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>